When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with Greg Lukianoff. Greg, welcome to the show, man. Great. Let's do it. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm really excited about this. So I had first encountered you through um, you co-authoring Coddling of the American Mind, which was an extraordinary book for me. As somebody with a lot of employees that were much younger than me, it really helped me begin to recontextualize sort of how they'd come up. We will definitely talk about that. But the part that Mm -hmm. I didn't see coming when I first started researching you was all the First Amendment work and Mm -hmm. the documentary uh, Mighty Ira which uh-huh. I, I had probably heard his name before, but didn't really know yeah. about him and his time at the ACLU and, um, you know, all the stuff that shook down in like Skokie, Illinois and the Nazis marching there. It's like really crazy how at the absolute center of the First Amendment free speech you really are. Um, and I'm really curious, one, how do you describe yourself? Uh-huh. And then two, uh, I want to know how you ended up as a First Amendment attorney. Oh wow, uh, that's a that's a long story. Um, hmm. I, I, well, I describe myself still as a political liberal, um, but I think that uh, I'm a little bit of a retro in the sense that I'm like probably a liberal circa, uh, circa 1983. You know, it, it is, is sometimes the way I think of it. Um, but the way I came to free speech, um, you know, I'm I'm a very proud first generation American. My my, um, my grandfather fought in the Bolshevik Revolution. We were um, uh, we could have been labeled kulaks because we were peasants who made good. Um, my great great grandfather. Meaning was you were certain. successful. So yeah. having yeah. having read the um, Gulag Archipelago, like yeah. what ends up happening to the kulaks is pretty terrifying. Yeah, um, and it's kind of funny because in any other country they were um, that that's a, that's a success story. Peasants who were slaves uh, if, uh, until eight, eight, 1861 to start doing well, and we did really well. We we became professors and lawyers, and you know, like uh, my, my grandfather was actually studying at Kiev Polytechnic, right at the outbreak of World War One, um, and that was you know he's going to be a engineer was the idea. Um, but Do you have any Bolshevik... sense what made that first generation of your family successful? No. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, my, my my grandfather died when my father was six, and it cut off a lot of that history. Um, the uh, you know, there's a lot, it's Russian, so there's constant tragedy. Tra- tragedy. Um, I don't really know. Um, I don't. I don't really know how we moved up so quickly. Um, and, Why did uh, the kulaks get turned against? Like, what was it that made them a target for actual murder? Well, for, first of all, it's really important to understand that kulak isn't really a thing. Um, it, it means basically fist in Russian, and it's made up. Like it's basically like it, it's treating a group of people who are very dissimilar as if they are a group of people, so you can hate them. Um, what and, was the thing they used as the similarity to identify them or categorize them? Uh, peasant uh, peasant farmers who own their own land. Um, was and they it were only hard. peasant farmers that were successful, or was uh-huh. it any peasant farmer? Pretty much, if you owned your own land, you were successful. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and and so we didn't fit all that well within the theory. Essentially, if if the entire system is so rigged that you need um, uh, a revolution, 
there is this inconvenient fact that there is at least not a sufficient number of the population to be sure. And I understand the complaint about that, but there was this large, you know, burgeoning middle class that didn't fit very well within the theory. And, and what is the revolution for people that don't understand Russian history very well? What was the re re the revolution that was being called for and uh -huh. why didn't that fit the narrative? Oh man. Okay. So that's, that's a long story, partially because um, it's all colored by the, uh, catastrophic disaster that was World War One in, in Russia. Um, you know, you know the, there was uh, revolts against the Tsar in 1905. He, he set up a parliament. Now, what's amazing is the Tsar was trying, Tsar and um, uh, Alexander II was trying to set up a, um, a Duma in 1863, 1862. And he was, um, and this is after he'd, he'd freed the Serbs. And he was killed on the way by by a revolutionary on the way to like trying to create trying to decrease his own power because the revolutionaries thought that that would um, be to placate the masses too much and they'd never get their glorious revolution um, that they want what what, what they the, usually uh, kind of a Marxist idea of, of what the what the future would look like. So a lot of my family history is like working people trying to actually do do a little bit better in the world, but being frustrated by people who, who want a, uh, uh, an all answering, oftentimes authoritarian utopian solution. Um, so, oh, sorry. You I was just going to say part of the reason that I wanted you to walk through that is yeah. the reason I'm so intrigued by what you do and who you are is because I feel like we are, we're hearing some of those similar songs being sung now about um, you know, people being called out for being successful, that following, you know, logic and things is belongs to a certain oppressive group and to leverage those tools is problematic in and of itself. And so they want to tear that down. And yep. if I remember right, and please jump in, I am not an expert on this, but if my understanding of what happened with the Kulaks and, you know, ultimately the, the famines that were born out of basically going, hey, these are the people that ended up owning the land were the, the successful farmers. They knew yeah. when best, how best to farm. And yep. when you, you actually kill them, which they yeah. did, you go in and kill them. Now all the people that know how to farm are dead. And so yeah. now farming doesn't happen and people starve yeah. to death. And it's one of those recognizing, and this is like I was saying before we started rolling, never did I think I would talk about subjects like this until sure. I actually started to get worried that this was spiraling out of control and yeah. that people had these really amazing intentions that history has shown us end in incredibly dark places. Yeah. And, and something that, that that's interesting, my, my father was a radical for being a moderate. Um, when, when, he, when he lived in Yugoslavia, he got kicked out of his, um, so, so my grandfather fought in the Bolshevik Revolution, we lost, um, like a lot of whites, they got evacuated um, through, actually through, uh, through Constantinople, which, was, which is an interesting story of itself. Um, and the poor, a lot of the poorer ones went to Zagreb um, in a place that wasn't exactly Yugoslavia yet, um, which is inter interesting too. Um, but the, the real tragedy of my dad's life is that his father then died when he was six. And he was given away as basically like an, an orphan um, in Yugoslavia in the 30s, which is just an absolute uh, an, an absolute horror show. And it's funny, despite all this stuff, you would think it would make him radical, but he was stuck between the Nazis and the communists, um, and he thought both were wrong. He actually got kicked out of his um, high school uh, because he was anti-Nazi, and this was after the Nazis had occupied Yugoslavia. Um, and it's amazing to, for, for Americans to think like, what, how would you feel if on one side you had the absolute, can I say batshit crazy idea of you can say national anything so you want, na 
national socialism, and then you've got the the, the super murderer of Stalin on the other side, and the the fact that he was able to sort of duck and roll with it is is something that you know I'm I'm proud of. So so anyway, that's a long way of saying my family has a uh, has a history of opposing authoritarianism, and it, and I think it's a little bit a part of our personalities too. Uh, my mother's British, um, uh, and she, you know, she's actually ethnically Irish, um, grew up in Britain, was kind of self-conscious about being the Irish girl, so in some ways became more British than the British, and I didn't fully understand that when I was a kid. So, and we grew up in, the, uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, which is like in the burbs of New York City. Um, and I got to tell, tell you, like the actual neighborhood I grew up in was amazing because like people have stereotypes about Connecticut. My, my best friends were from Peru. They were from Korea. They were from Vietnam. Uh, they, uh, from the guy I got the guy used to beat me up a lot was from Puerto Rico. Like we, we, we had people, it was really like an amazingly sort of multicultural experience. And meanwhile, within my own house, we had really dramatically different norms about what you should and shouldn't say. So my mom had this exaggerated sense of politeness. And my father has this idea of politeness is a form of deception, you know, uh, which is true ultimately. But so there's a Russian like, like for, in some cases, uh, sort of brutally, brutal honesty, you know. And these two things were intention. Um, so I talk about my second earliest memory. My first earliest memory is my fourth birthday. I got an Aquaman toy and a Jaws, um, a, a Jaws doll, because it was like 77 kind of or something like that. And it was Christmas when I was four. And I got a drum for my Auntie Rona. I'd later find out that um, uh, Rona was just making a joke about, you know, giving your, your your best friend kid a drum was just the meanest thing you could do to her. But it was a joke, so it was this crappy plastic drum. And so I was like, it was the first gift I ever got that I genuinely didn't like. And I'm like looking up at my mom, and she's asking me if I like it. And I'm looking at my dad, and I'm like, I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. And I just burst into tears. And with my older sister, I'm the youngest of four, saying, um, oh, baby, doesn't like his present, you know, uh, starts crying. And I'm like, and I wanted to be like, no, that's not what's happening. I, I, it's a paradox. Like, there's, there's, no, there, there's no way to actually resolve this. Um, and so for a very early memory was that you cannot be both honest and polite. And then in the actual neighborhood I grew up in, everybody's parents had some other idea of what the appropriate thing would say. And if you actually took everybody's parents' norms for what you were allowed to say, nobody would be allowed to say anything. So it had to be free speech had to be the rule. Basically, yeah, sometimes he got punched, you know, um, for, for saying the wrong thing. But for the most part, you know, like it, it, people respected each other as individuals, would hear each other out. And sometimes, you know, it, some, and often, surprisingly often, it would actually work out. Um, so I, I started as a free speech person from a very early age. Um, the next step is college. I, I was a student journalist. And for a lot of people who are in First Amendment law, where they really get um, radicalized into it, if you can think of it that way, is the experience of having people come into your newspaper office and demand that you fire so-and-so. Um, and you see the wheels are turning in their heads. They're like, you need to get rid of this columnist. Um, and they haven't figured out why yet. They just know that they're angry about that columnist, but they, but, and, they, and they will figure out because whatever they think is convenient at the time, because it's tr defamation, because it's treason, because it's harassment. They'll, they'll come up with some kind of argument if you give them anything. And you start realizing that's why free speech has to be so broad and uncompromising, because the human brain is incredibly good at figuring out rationalizations for defeating their enemy. And there's one, there's one final step here. Um, it actually relates to Section 230 of the, um, uh, of the Communications Decency Act, which is currently very controversial. 
Um, but the original part of the Communications Decency Act, why it's called that, um, was a provision that prevented indecency on the internet. Um, even as a senior in, in college, I was like, that is laughably, that, that, there's no way you can enforce something that vague and broad. And, uh, I, and um, I got really, um, uh, I got so animated about that, I started studying about it. And that's when I took the LSAT. And that's when I, that's why I decided to go to law school. Um, and I, I went to law school and specialized in it, uh, specialized in First Amendment law. Now, why so, is that so controversial now? Because it's so impossible to police or? Well, the, the, the oh, yeah, I should have finished the story on, on the original Communications Decency Act. Um, it, the, it included a ban on indecency on the Internet. Um, and it was def and in, in sort of a, a little bit of heartbreaking timing, you know, I'd spent so many years fighting this. And uh, the decision from the Supreme Court came out uh, right before I started law school <laughs> or, right, or maybe in my first couple of weeks or something like that. So like, oh, I want to be involved in this, but I was too late. Um, because indecency is just too broad. It's just too vague. It, it could apply to virtually anything. And the Supreme Court, in an, an opinion called uh, Reno v. ACLU, said that the Internet should be treated very much like you would, with, like the strongest free, free speech protections available under the law. And, you know, that was that 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 was like one of the big causes that brought me into this stuff. All right. So this is where things begin to collide in terms of coddling of the American mind and this notion that we have. And I know you hate the word coddling, so I'm not trying to be derogatory at all. But we had these good intentions um, mm -hmm. that ended up becoming sort of bad parenting practices because you weren't giving yeah. kids the opportunity to sort of go get hurt um, physically, to get scuffled emotionally and have to sort of figure their way through that and, you know, develop a robust set of skills for dealing with the world the way that it is colliding with this explosion of speech through the internet and voices that may have once been very, very small now suddenly can get, you know, pretty mm -hmm. big attention. Um, and the increasing polarization and the calls for sort of the end of free speech is quite frankly, what it feels like is just an average Joe trying to make his way in the world here. Um, yeah. I think as a way into how you feel about this, I'd love to ask you about Mighty Ira. So one, uh -huh. what was that documentary? And two, you said you were proud of it. Why? Oh my God, Mighty Ira. Okay, so Mighty Ira, um, also to go back a little bit to you know how I grew up, um, the ultimate bad guys as a kid, obviously, were, were, was, the, was the Klan. Um, you know, there, there was, uh, I remember as a kid, um, you know, uh, they also hated Catholics too, and I was raised Catholic, but you know, just the fact they would hate my friends w w was truly bad enough. But I remember hearing that there was a group of political liberals who would even defend them and who would, and unlike the reaction it got from some other people, you know, first generation American kind of proud of how exceptional and strange this place was. I was like, and instead of being critical of them, I was like, that's amazingly principled. That, that, those are people who really mean it. Um, it they, they, you know, no, make no law means make no law. So from a very early age, I was inspired by this person I'd never even heard of, Ira Glasser of the ACLU. And Ira Glasser was the, um, he was one of the top people at the ACLU going back to the 60s, but he became um, executive director of the ACLU in 79, right after the Skokie um, uh, there was, there were the Nazis, neo-Nazis wanted to march in Illinois. Um, and they wanted to march in a neighborhood that had actually a, a, a survivors of the Holocaust, you know, pretty, pretty hard stuff. And the ACLU came in and defended them. Um, and honestly, I think that one of the things that really took the teeth out of the Nazi movement of the 1970s was people getting to see 
what a bunch of horrible buffoons these people were, um, what, a, what a joke these people were. And so, and the person who was willing to go that far and really was, became the face of um, the, the defense of, of, of even Nazis, well, actually there were several, including Ari Nair, who wrote a book called Defending My Enemy, which is just a masterpiece on freedom of speech. This is a, this is a survivor of the camps who is saying, no, no, the way we avoid this happening again is not through greater power of authority, it's for, through um, a tolerance until it hurts, but zero tolerance for actual violence. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but people like Ari Nair came up then, Nadine Strawson was just starting at the time, uh, a big name in the ACLU for a long time, and Ira Glasser, you know, and so a lot of the fame of the ACLU being so incredibly principled, that happened on Ira's watch. Um, and Ira is just this amazing model of the kind of civil libertarian I've, I've always wanted to be, which is to, you know, care about a variety of issues, but be uncompromising on free speech, even if it goes to the uh, to causes that you think are very important and you have positions on particular things. You're not going to try to shut up the people who disagree with you ever. Um, that is just completely outside of bounds. And I know a lot of people from that generation of the ACLU, including my mentor, Harvey Silverglade, um, who is the uh, co-founder of, of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights of edu in Education, which I'm the president of. So this whole- Really this fast, whole, why, yeah. why do you think it's so important to defend your enemy? Why is, what is the danger in the breakdown of freedom of speech? Like in the, in the documentary, you guys really do a great job of showing what was going on in Skokie, Illinois, which for those that I was not familiar with it until I watched mm -hmm. this documentary. For those that don't know the story, you have these, like you said, neo-Nazis. They want to march. They end up specifically because they couldn't get to the part of downtown Chicago, Chicago that they wanted to march in. They end up sort of on the outskirts and they write letters to all these different little suburbs saying, we're going to march to your neighborhood. Everybody ignore them except one, the Skokie, Illinois people. Now, what makes yeah. this interesting is they were responding because you have these um, Jewish people that had survived the Holocaust, tattoos. I mean, they're, they're maybe only 20 years out. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And they're saying like, we said never again. And so we're going to rise up. They're threatening violence. And you get these like sort of Obviously, the punchline is they end up not marching. But the before mm -hmm. that, there was all this violence leading up to it where just yeah. sort of showing their face. They were so ready to fight. And the Nazis were you know ready to fight. And so they were actually fighting. And it was yeah. insane. And so yeah. that's the, you know, the moment where the ACLU is going and fighting and fighting and fighting. And I have yeah. to admit, like watching it as somebody who you know, not being sort of grounded enough in politics to, to speak yeah. intelligently about the First Amendment other than from sort of a user's perspective. Yep. But watching it, I was like, fuck, like, is there a moment where this is too crazy? Where you just yeah. say, guys, they, they, they still have the tattoos. They're in their, I mean, maybe 50s, but they're not like 90. Yeah. And that's gnarly to have people yeah. march through their town. So with that setup, I want to know, yeah. like, why is it even in that moment still important yeah. enough to give them that right? Yeah, I definitely think there were times during that whole process that, you know, and, and there was times where people were arrested on both sides for actually engaging, engaging in violence, and that's appropriate. But you have to keep a really strong distinction between opinion and action. Um, and it's one, of the, it's one of the great innovations in human society. Um, and when people are arguing that words are like bullets and they think this is this innovative idea that words are violence, it's like, no, that's actually the overwhelming majority of human history. We've treated words as indistinguishable as vi uh, from violence. One of the great innovations that have brought us so much good in the world is this strong distinction between speech and, uh, and action. 
When you say and, that and they, they were muddled throughout history, what do you mean? Um, that that is that essentially, you know, if you going back throughout history, well, one, uh, well, that's a little bit. Uh, I, then I start getting into, um, you know, the, the blasphemy um, law and the um, the way that that uh, that was like one of the chief um, uh, ways of limiting uh, speech, you know, in, in the old days. So prior to what do I mean by muddled is that essentially in every and it's, it's hard to find moments in history where you couldn't be very quickly hung or executed for saying the wrong thing. Um, and the idea that people are genuinely entitled to their, without, now the innovation from that, a, a human's natural state more or less is xenophobic. <laughs> um, that, you know, it, it's, it's really telling that early Greek stories include um, prescriptions of like, please don't kill strangers is one of those things that you see like, you know, ancient bards essentially telling, uh, t telling people. And it's funny because you realize these are epic, uh, you know, some of these people spreading the epic poems are actually strangers going from town to town, basically giving stories about why you shouldn't kill me. <laughs> um, so hostility towards nonconformity, I think, is baked very, uh, very much into the human species. Um, you have periods of tolerance. Uh, so like I'd say there are periods in the Roman Empire where there's, you know, comparative tolerance that, that, that essentially people, there's some amount of live and let live with uh, like the Jewish population and different, uh, different um, faiths and that kind of stuff. But the real innovation is not just, um, is what John Rausch calls liberal science that everybody's essentially entitled to their opinion. Um, nobody gets to call special authority on things and no argument is ever truly over. And this requires a very big distinction between the expression of opinion and action. Whereas, you know, even throughout Western history, opinion and action were, were, uh, were muddled in things like, you know, reputational harm, that, that essentially the, uh, dueling is, is a perfect example of what used to be called a culture of honor, that essentially, it's up to you to defend your reputation and def defend what's yours on your own, usually through violence. The society that that um, me and Height end up defending a lot, and I defend in particular, is has been named a culture of dignity, which has these ideas about autonomy, separation of uh, of, of, of opinion and action, of of um, respect for people being entitled to their own opinion, to each their own respect for, um, and and it always comes embedded with some amount of epistemic humility, uh, just the idea that there are there's not just limits to what I know, there's limits to what I can know. Yeah, that that whole, um, and epistemic is one of those words that I had to look up because I had no idea originally what that meant. But uh, that's a pretty good definition that you, you just know that you're not going to know everything. And so stepping into the game with that level of humility is incredibly important. So that, that context to me is so critical for people under to understand one, why I'm so enamored with you as a voice in the world, but two, as to why I think this moment is so important. So I want to go back to the Nazis. They're about to sure, sure. march in Skokie, yeah. but now with that understanding of when you, yeah. when you look at history through the lens of normally people misspeak and they are killed for it, you begin yeah. to understand why it's like, hey, this was an innovation. Recognize it as such. We have to now protect yeah. this innovation because the alternative is authoritarian and we start killing people for saying things we yeah. don't like. And the way that that yeah. flips and becomes you're the person that people don't like that gets killed yeah. happens way too quickly. And and that's the thing it is that people sometimes call it um, uh, like the slippery slope fallacy is what you're worried about in the case of the Nazis. Like, what would be the big deal if we punish somebody as repugnant as, uh, as that? And the big deal is that that's completely subjective. And who's going to be considered that repugnant is going to move and move and move surprisingly quickly. 
Um, and this is something that, that I've seen when people bring up the slippery slope fallacy. In my own career, it's, it, 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 it's a slippery slope tendency. The, 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 <laughs> as soon as you actually give somebody you know, the idea that, wait, wait, I can ban things because they're offensive. And it's like, well, we mean by this Nazis. Um, but I really hate that comedian. You know, I think porn is offensive. I think, and all these things actually happened in the, in, in the early 80s. I think Dungeons and Dragons is offensive. Uh, I think comic books are offensive. All of these things happen. Um, and it, all you need to do, and that, that, was the, that, that was the thing I learned from working in, uh, as a student journalist, is as soon as you open a little door for someone's mind to be like, wait a second, you're giving me a weapon over people I don't like? Yay, I'll, I'll take it. So you have to you have to police the boundaries of it. Now, now the Nazi uh, representing Nazis is the absolute high watermark of how far, you know, people are willing to go. Um, but the safeguard on that is as soon as people actually start doing things, you know, conspiring towards violence, engaging in, in crime, then arrest them <laughs> by, by all means. But we have to be very sharply protecting the power to have any opinion you want, no matter how aberrant. Now, I actually take it a step further in my own personal philosophy of freedom of speech. And it's this, the project of human knowledge is to know the world as it is. And that means that if you don't know what people really think and why, you'll never know, you'll never, you'll never understand that. So there's something very primitive about censorship. It's like, it's like saying, listen, if you have the fall, even if 75% of you have some crazy idea about the nature of the universe or about your fellow man, we don't want to know. It's not it's not important somehow, which is, of course, nonsense. It's incredibly important to know what people think, and not just from a democratic standpoint, which it is, um, but also from a scientific standpoint from, and from a simple wanting to know what the world looks like um, uh, perspective. There's, there's something uh, and, uh, childish, frankly, in my opinion, about censorship. The idea that if we don't talk about it at the dinner table, it will go away. And it's like, no, actually, it's still there. And actually, in some ways, because you're not addressing it, it might be getting worse. Yeah, that. Uh, I'm going to latch on to that word childish. Mm -hmm. um, it, that seems like a perfect intersection with uh, coddling of the American mind. So mm -hmm. how 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 do we end up here? Like we go from Ira Glasser, who is Jewish, if I'm not mistaken, oh, defending yeah, yeah. Nazis because he, he understands that slippery he's slope. A, he's a Jewish champion of civil rights. Um, and he was with, um, at, at the time of the ACLU, there are other people like Harvey Silverglade, Jewish champion of civil rights. Um, but absolutely, the, one of the ways that they, they believed you achieved that is by limiting the power of the state. Now, how does that make coherent sense to population, to, to people, to, to younger people today? Um, there's a really kind of pernicious reason why it doesn't, and it takes a, a minute to explain. Um, when I speak on campuses now, and when I speak at high schools, which I'm increasingly doing, I have to explain this very basic thing that I never thought you had to explain before. In a democracy, uh, uh, the power of the majority is protected by the vote. Um, the rich and powerful are protected by being rich and powerful. Literally, the only thing you need a protection of free speech for is for minority opinions, period. And that's one of the reasons why, when you look at the history of the United States, it's only when free speech started becoming powerful, um, which started at first in 1925. It's a, it's a confusing story, but the First Amendment had basically no powerful legal meaning until about 1925. It was very weak. Um, then after 1925, it started getting stronger and stronger. There was a little dip in the in the second Red Scare, uh, but then up and up again. It's mostly, you know, an increasing, um, an increasingly broad interpretation of free speech. It's no coincidence that that was the same time that the civil rights movement happened, the gay rights movement happened, 
um, the women's rights movement happened because all of these movements had tried to start before, mm. um, including probably, I think even the gay rights movement had tried to start in the 1950s. It was only when the, and the civil rights movement, there were people who were trying, who were fighting for that, you know, from, from day, from day one, women's rights movement that goes back to the 19th century, but they're constantly arrested um, for engaging in free speech. And as the law finally started to live up to what it was meant to mean in the first place, a real broad protection of free speech, that's how you started getting minority um, opinions out there and you started getting civil rights and all these other wonderful uh, progressions. Now, why don't younger people understand this? Um, and, it, and it comes to something that, that uh, I think people are sometimes hesitant to say, and I think they should just stop. Um, in K through 12 and higher education, um, the uh, the overall sort of power structure of all these places is very um, uh, homogeneous in terms of it being uh, politically uh, left. Um, and this is established. This is just clear in, in, in overwhelming amount of K through 12 and, and most colleges in the country, all of the elite colleges. You have um, in some departments, you have, you know, 30 to one in terms of left versus right uh, professors. In some, in some departments, you have literally nobody and administrators it turns out are, are even worse now why does this matter if for decades there's someone in power but they don't want to admit they're in power they don't they, they don't own their own power um and you're coming up to and they're basically saying that uh they would like to be able to punish that person you don't like um for their free speech what you're experiencing is an inversion of the normal power dynamic, where essentially this is the will of the majority uh, on campus, but it's not willing to admit that it's the will of, will of the majority. And the minority opinions are dissenters, whether they be a Brett Weinstein or, or a conservative or you know, any, any group of people who don't, who, who don't conform. But because colleges can't own the fact that they are incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy um, it, uh, it, it, you know, um, uh, institutions, that do tend to be somewhat homogeneous, you end up with uh, generation after generation with an impression that free speech is the argument of the bad guy, um, that free speech is the argument, and they, they've never even been taught that it's there to defend minority opinions because there's this total inversion of, of, of their actual experience. And decade after decade, you, you hear people saying, well, because of that, that lousy free speech movement, I, have to, I can't shut down these people you don't like. Um, without ever explaining to them how that came came to be, you end up in this kind of perverse situation where people actually are coming to believe the absurdity that free speech is the argument of power and privilege. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for 
a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Wow. Okay. That is, uh, that is very interesting that we've sort of intentionally or unintentionally begun to sort of flip the way that people view that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love the way that you said I would have canceled this, you know, evil, heinous person were it not for that pesky uh, First Amendment. That's really interesting framing that begins to sort of clarify a lot of, of what's and going on. You have some power. It, it, and that's and, and what's and what's messed up. And, and like, I, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that this unwillingness to accept its own massive amounts of privilege, power and wealth, higher education has also had people, um, you know, including at my alma mater, Stanford who, uh, you know, write scholarship uh, about restricting free speech that ends up being popular in other countries. So this kind of free speech skepticism has actually been exported, you know, to other countries, even though we protect free speech really, really well in the United States. I think I think for in terms of one of the most fundamental human liberties, um, a lot of what's come out of campus has been just a disaster for for human freedom. Whoa, that that is a a very bold (laughs) statement. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of increasingly becoming aware of of what that output looks like as an employer um, more mm-hmm. than anything, but uh, that that's a really bold statement. So now going to 
um, the what you guys talk about in the coddling of the American mind, there's this it, it's almost so weird that I hesitate to take you literally, but you've said it so many times in exactly mm-hmm. the same way that I imagine you actually do mean it literally that somewhere oh. around, uh, 2013, 2014 or 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, um, yeah. that seemingly almost overnight, all of a sudden students yeah. go from being the biggest champions of free speech. So the administrators are, are, you know, nut jobs that are yep. writing this stuff that's getting exported to, um, you know, foreign countries. Many of them are very nice people. <laughs> All lovely people, but mm-hmm. um, you know, we're we're exporting these ideas that are um, potentially detrimental, and mm-hmm. almost overnight, suddenly, it becomes the students who are now fighting against um, freedom of speech. How, like, if we were going to intentionally orchestrate that, how could yeah. we make it happen at such a specific moment? I um, I hit that so hard because it's the difference between being someone who studies this and actually being on the ground. Um, because I'd been uh, defending free speech on campus since 2001, um, you know, and we kept a really close ear to the ground. We, we would hear about um, an awful lot of cases, even obscure schools across the country. And it was pretty reliable. Uh, students were good on free speech. They got it. Um, they, they, they were they would stand up for professors' rights. They got it better than professors. They got it better than administrators. And then suddenly, um, uh, in the semester 2013, it, it, it started more towards the, the end of the fall semester 2013, and then really exploded in the spring semester 2014. And then, you know, here we are. It's the first time you start hearing of students are uh, really organizing in good in great number to to ban particular speakers from campus to demand new speech codes based on sort of medicalized rationales, um, whether they, they be um, uh, trigger warnings or um, uh, uh, po- post-traumatic stress syndrome was one of the things that came up. Um, and it was not, a, not in, in the least subtle. And Coddling the American Mind, I mean, really the whole book is just trying to figure out what was so different about that class entering in 2014 uh, and 2013, 2014. And I got to tell you, doing the research for it, it was fascinating. We didn't at the time, understand that we were dealing with a new, like a, a new generation of students with pretty remarkably different sets of values and expectations. Um, and we predicted in an article we wrote in 2015 that this would be a disaster for mental health. Um, two, for, for it's interesting. Sometimes it takes a little bit to explain the connection between free speech and mental health. Um, but our original article was trying to um, explain uh, how we got there, and we 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 thought there was going to be you know some modest increase in um, uh, mental health issues on campus, and it was an explosion instead of you know a, a, a modest increase. And you know how do we get to the point where you've got people that are um, beginning to argue for these ideas that they're not they they have flipped, but we're mm-hmm. Really, what we're trying to parse out is how much of this is social media and how mm-hmm. much of this is them having to keep everything inside themselves. Because I social media, I get just because of the nature mm-hmm. of how it affects like the way that your brain is developing and the constant uh, feedback from peers that are hitting you even as you're going to bed and waking up in the morning. I mean, that, that strikes me as terrifying. Um, yeah. But the the other side, why would it impact mental health just to have to stay quiet? Um. Just after repress your your identity and your points of view is is, is inherently stressful. Um, but when it, when I think about kind of like where where a lot of this ultimately comes from, a lot of things that unite uh, my my heights thinking about it is kind of the sort of runaway sorting, the runaway homophily effect. You know that that, that essentially 
um, social media just sped up a process that was already happening, but it sped it up dramatically. What's essentially, homophily? Um, the, the, uh, the attracted a like, like attracting like, being a, uh, for, for people with similar points of view, with similar... Uh, homophily. Is that what yeah. that's from? Yep. Got it. Got it. Love, okay, love of cool. same. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little slow. Thank you. And so uh, sorting, uh, I do think that, um, not to oversimplify it, but I do think a lot of what we're seeing um, are problems of society sort of super sorting and uh, weird effects that, co that come out of that. And social media is something that sped up that process. So, and one thing that has been interesting in our subsequent research on the social media effect on depression um, is that uh, we definitely didn't think it was so much screen time as, as social media. And it looks like the research on screen time is saying something more that the, expect, uh, the effect of screen time is more ambivalent and in some cases for some students. And understandably, actually, it can be positive, uh, for example. But that some of the depressive effect uh, might simply come from the fact that in a situation with social media, it's very easy to support, to, to, to sort even by temperament. So if like uh, depressed people start talking to depressed people, you, you, the, the, you know, the, the, the Depeche Mode support group is going That's to probably really get more depressed. So I think that, that some of the effect of social media is actually uh, runaway sorting effects. Uh, We're just subgrouping down and now we get people that I'm sure there are some people in an upward spiral, but then there are other yeah. people in a downward spiral and that's yep. being exacerbated in sort of my area of like mindset. We talk a lot yeah. about you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Um, and, and I've tried to get people to think about it in a, a slightly more expanded way, which is you're actually the average of the five ideas you spend the most time with. And huh. if those ideas are being reflected back to you in your Depeche Mode example of the idea that we celebrate is life is, you know, shit and every day, you know, life's a shit sandwich and every day is another bite. And, you know, <laughs> and it, you just get into that downward spiral and then there's cutting and there's, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that, you know, people can spiral down into. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I uh, I get now what you mean by how that sorting effect becomes deranging. Yeah, and and we do, and I do also still think that the 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 part of it that talks about the mean girls aspect is also true. Like because this is hitting young women harder than it's hitting men, and you know men generally because you know we're awful when the hormones start kicking in. Like it, it, it's kind of like I remember being eleven. I've watched this in other kids. You have this like weird sort of island of sanity where you're like, what's wrong with all these mildly younger people? And then the hormones kick in, and you're nuts. You're just completely insane. But male, you know, aggression generally is physical um, or uh, fronting, you know, in some cases, or actual violence or, or playing football. Like, like, like I, I, was, I was actually a defensive tackle, believe it or not. Um, uh, but for, for women, generally, the aggression is expressed socially, uh, that essentially it's, you know, uh, fighting alliances with friends and gossip and, and all of this kind of, um, you know, nastiness that we all kind of remember from junior high. And social media makes that uh, into just a, a super weapon, essentially, like, I, I can't even imagine what a one of those scenarios would look like um, with social media, like if they had it back in the day. Mm. That being said, one of the, uh, one of the things that I, that I was never able to get enough research on is I do think that in some cases, that scenario becoming hot led to the response of the anti-bullying movement. And the anti-bullying movement, um, although I, I have a lot of sympathy for it, was very anti-speech. It was it was very much kind of like don't offend people, don't hurt people's feelings, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it and and even though I, I think that a lot of it was well past due, I do I was never able to really 
do a deep dive in, in, into the anti-bullying stuff because, but I do think that that lines up also extremely well. Talk to me about that. So what would you do? I mean, I know you have young kids, so let's say that there's somebody in class just being really hateful to them, but it's just speech that never spills yeah. over into, let's say they're not even int- intimidating them. They're just being mean. Yeah. That, that's the thing is, um, you know, I, I, I've been writing these things called coddling caveats. Or I try to be very clear. And, and my, I, I got some advice while we were writing the book that I actually now think we, we were wrong to follow, which was I wanted to say a lot of times in the book that I'm not good at this stuff myself. I am an anxious parent, um, like all this kind of stuff. And so to be clear, I'm not prescribing stuff that I think is easily done, uh, that I find easy. That my, my wife generally has to remind me to do this. Um, when it comes to meanness, you know, I... It was kind of taken, at least when we were kids, it was kind of like just genuine meanness. You know, there, there was a sense of like, so what? You know, like the um, leave me alone, you know. Uh, and then there was also a fair amount of actual, you know, hitting, which was not appropriate. Um, I got, you know, I got beat up a lot as a kid. Um, and I wouldn't want any. Because you were lippy or why Why were you getting beaten up a lot? Nerd. That's so interesting. I was nerdy for sure, but I, I didn't get beat up a lot. But the growing up, there was definitely a sense for me, and I think you and I are the same generation. Um, Jack? Yeah. So, right? So growing <laughs> up for me, it was, eh, toughen up. Like if you went yeah. and cried, you'd get made fun of for being the crybaby. And people didn't want to hang out with a person who was always like super easily offended. Yeah. And it wasn't even that you didn't get it. Like I remember I had one friend who would cry a lot. And yeah. I liked him a lot. Such a good dude. And I always just wanted to be like, bro, like you're not making friends every time you cry. Like it turns people off. And yeah. we and it's it interesting. Broke my heart, though, when, when, when it was clear a kid couldn't could, like couldn't control that, you know, like at, I, I remember just how much sort of visceral pain you would feel when you'd see someone who. Greg, this is why I don't have children. Because I don't know that I could put them in the position to give them the advice that I would give an adult, which is that you just got to toughen up and deal with it, which, by the way, I think is the answer. And if I were going to sum up our conversation before we started having it with one quote, the thing Mm -hmm. I really wanted to get across in this whole discussion is prepare the kid for the road, not the road for the kid. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, yes, like that is so true. There's no way to remove all the potholes from the world. And you it turns into a totalitarian nightmare when you try because Mm -hmm. people left to their own devices don't gravitate towards that. It's a rough and tumble world that we're in. And the Mm -hmm. only way to get everybody to like play nice or fair or whatever is to make it such a nightmare and to Mm -hmm. use violence as a way to stop people from some of their natural inclinations that mm-hmm. the cure ends up being worse than the, than the disease. And so yeah. it, like you, I, I don't look at this and say, oh, this would be easy. I look at this and say, this is terrifyingly difficult and is absolutely mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I didn't want to have kids. Yeah. But when I think about raising a well-adjusted child, like they're, yeah. they're going to have to figure some things out on their way. They, they, as much as no one wants to see their kids take lumps, they're going to have yeah. to take lumps. And well, and, and in some ways, I, I think we almost see this too much through a negative lens because taking um, lumps. Uh, yeah. Uh, but learning how to um, because the uh, I, I read this book that was like recommended to me as sort of like a counterweight to um, 
coddling the American mind, which was called the myth of the spoiled child, um, which I was like, great, you know, like, let's talk about this. And it really is talking about how to this particular psychologist's mind, there isn't enough research to prove that like, that's even a thing, which is like, okay, that's funny. Um, <laughs> but um, a phenomenon that we've all seen ourselves uh, but uh, in, in, in our own lives. But the thing that I found, found, well, the first thing I found so funny about it was it was this book railing against snide and oversimplistic dummies, you know, who, who think that spoiling a child was a real thing that was said in exactly the tone that the, the author was, was claiming was so wrong. It was so uh, snide and, and dismissive. But there was a section where it was talking about just the horror you do to your child when they have the experience of losing. Um, like a game, like, can you imagine letting them lose was a horror, letting them lose. And, and it was um, this idea of like, of, of, of failing on a test or failing in the following circumstances. And it's like, you do know there's another side to that, right? Where essentially, when you play a sport, for example, you go from like, I'm crushed that I lost to eventually like, okay, yeah, that, that, that's okay. You know, like, and, and the, that empowerment that happens on the other side of it, that can actually even happen pretty quickly if you let it, where it's like, I handled that. I'm autonomous. I feel pretty good. I feel, I feel like I can handle myself. The other thing that you end up producing for that poor kid is a sense that, because what you're really doing is whispering into their ear constantly, you can't handle this on your own. You need someone up there to handle this for you. And that's dangerous thinking for a democracy for one thing. Um, Why is it dangerous? The, the, the idea that every problem has to be solved by an appeal to authority um, is a- Why, why is that dangerous? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Truly, you, I, you said this in an interview. You, you said that I actually fear centralized authority. I am so aggressively on that team, but for uh -huh. somebody who that doesn't make sense, like, of course, have a central authority. Somebody who's looking out for everybody, has their best yeah. interests, is willing to, you know, go to war to make sure that they're safe and protected. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Why yeah. is that bad? Because essentially what, what you're trying to do with small liberal systems is have uh, is see what happens when humans are empowered individually um, and, and can actually uh, have autonomy over their own life. If you want an appeal to authority, if you want power to be taking care of you um, under all circumstances um, and to take away, you know, the difficulty of, of, of everyday life, you're not actually asking for freedom. You're asking for the system as old as time. You're asking for authoritarianism. You're asking for the czar. And one of the reasons why this makes me, um, why, you know, like my family history, of course, obviously means a lot to me. And when I started studying 19th century, you know, Russian thought, I was shocked to see um, uh, pro-czarist theorists actually make this argument. The greatest freedom that Russians have is the freedom from. The czar takes away the the difficulty of rule the difficulty of choice the difficulty of being of all these things you have to worry about and some of them you know like your safety of course you do want authority to take care of um but everything else we, we take care of the difficulty of being um uh being autonomous the difficulty of being in a democratic society all the responsibility we take that from you so and that's the greatest freedom and I couldn't believe I was I, I was reading this. It sounded like the dumbest argument I ever heard in my life. But the more I thought about it, uh, I actually wrote a piece called Fleabag Noom um, and uh, uh, um, uh, and Censorship Gravity uh, on my blog, Eternally Radical Idea. It's a very weird post, but it's talking about the show Fleabag, where she get. Have you watched that? I've seen the first season. Yeah. 
Um, second season's much better. Um, That's what and, I heard. I love the first, so I'm I'm dying to see the second. The, fir the first is it, it's it, she's a genius, um, and but she gives a speech at one point uh, about ask wanting someone to tell her everything to do, um, and about how and she starts crying about the idea of kind of like I just want someone to tell me exactly what to do, and it scares her how much she wants someone to tell her what to do. With this, uh, and the thing that I love about that scene so much is because. Freedom is supposed to be scary or you're not doing it right. Um, but it's the only way to get to that sense of autonomy. Great. Why uh, does it why does it matter? Because I'm going to I'll give you a, a sort of what I've seen. So one of the ways that I have become effective at being a CEO is that um, mm -hmm. I'm right often enough that the companies become profitable. But the other thing is that I understand humans absolutely crushing desire for certainty. They mm -hmm. need me to be certain. And if I'm certain, they'll follow me. Yeah. And all I need to do to alleviate fear, I don't even have to give you the answer you wanted. I just have to show yeah. you that I'm certain that this answer is going to work. And then yeah. I will weather that storm. Now, it, it's very interesting because in the business world, I, I use that tremendously to my advantage. But in the civilian world, it scares me to death that people mm -hmm. want that. So what, what is it? That because uh -huh. what you're presenting, and again, I I am with you. I just want you to put words oh, to sure, it. Sure. But what is it that we get from taking mm -hmm. on this scary ass responsibility for our own lives of having freedom, having autonomy, having mm -hmm. to deal with all that bullshit, making those decisions? What is it we get from that that's worth the price of having to deal with everything? Wow, uh, it, it it it's a great question, and you know, to a degree, it's. It's overcome. It really is the other side of overcoming your fears that, that essentially, if you leave someone in a situation where all their problems are handled by some third party, there's always that sort of fear in their belly that essentially, if they didn't have the support, they would they would never make it. Um, the sort of pride and confidence that you can leave after ha having lived through a real a real crisis, it shouldn't take a real crisis to give to give you that experience of autonomy, feeling fully realized, all, all of these kind of things. And I think in, in terms of a thriving, fulfilling life, um, if you're always if you're always whispering into your own ear that you can't really handle life on your own, um, that you can't really handle most situations on your own, that's that's depression. That, that that's and that's one of the reasons why I think uh, one of the reasons why you have such high rates of depression um, and unfortunately, suicide and anxiety among, among a lot of these students going to elite, elite schools because they're being told their entire lives, yes, you're very bright, but you're not capable of handling your own life because the real world is terrifying. But of course, as soon as you actually um, face some of those terrors, since you, you know, it's kind of like getting through your early 20s, you know, which can, for a lot of people, can be a very dark time. And then you come out on the other end of it and you're like, hmm so bad i can do this and it and it feels like being a fully realized person um and but you need to be able to you know have that internal locus of control that that internal sense of autonomy for things like you know um, actualization for mental health for creativity all, all of these kind of things can you live a, a fulfilling life where you can't make any where, where you don't feel confident that you can make any decisions meaningful decisions for yourself maybe um but it's not one i'd like to live 
I will say that I don't think it's possible. And the reason that I don't think it's possible and the reason that I think autonomy is so critically important and that people have to get it together and take control of their own life is, so I'm I'm flirting with this idea I call the physics of being human. And I believe mm-hmm. that the human mind, no matter where you're born, no matter what time period, uh, there are certain things that your mind is compelling you to do. So we are an active species. So yeah. uh, if you leave us alone, we're going to map out our environment, try to figure it out, try to dominate it, get resources from it, food, water, shelter, all that. Like you, you don't have to tell people to do that. They will just do that. It's a natural impulse. Same with sex. Like you, you've got these um, things that are propelling you forward. I think one of them is this desire to have autonomy, that, that it is pre-programmed into your mind. And no matter what I do, if you don't have that, there will be a certain level of anxiety. Now, I'm the guy that just said people love certainty and they love to follow you. But there is this, what you were talking about, there's this thing running in the back of their mind that says, I don't know how to do this. And because I don't know how to do it, if there isn't somebody there and you have enough moments in your life where you're paralyzed because there's nobody there to help you. And that is so demoralizing and terrifying in such a horrible place that you carry that then forward with you in your life. So mm-hmm. I believe because that we have this um, subconscious process running in the human mind that tells us that we need to do hard things in mm-hmm. service, not only of ourselves, but other people, no matter who you are, unless you're a sociopath, that is running in the back of your mind, that mm-hmm. you have to get good at something that matters to you and matters to other people And then, and this is the key, if if I were to sum up the one thing I'm trying to get the world to understand, it is this. Skills have utility. Meaning, Uh if you learn how to do something, you're no longer beholden to anybody else. So I'll I'll use movie terms here real fast. So one of the most horrifying moments in any movie ever for me or book for that matter since it's based on a novel is the moment where Oliver and Oliver Twist comes up and says, please, uh, can I have some more? (laughs) And he doesn't get to decide whether he has more. And of course, the guy goes ballistic. And you just, this is exactly why I ended up getting into business. I went into film and I couldn't get films made the way that I wanted them made. And somebody gave me the key insight. Hey, you're coming to the world with your hand out. And if you want to control the art, you have to control the resources. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh my God, that's amazing. If I go get rich, then I can do things that I want to do. But to get rich, I had to get good at something the world cared about. And I had to be able to offer more value. And yeah. so that process of going in and fighting to get better every day and then realizing, oh my God, I can actually, I've learned a set of skills that allows me to get a group of people galvanized around one idea, moving in the same direction with speed. We can create things of value. And now not only do I have resources financially, but I have intellectual resources that I can leverage to get other people to help me do something to have a meaningful impact in the world. Now, when I think about how I feel about myself now, where Mm -hmm. I know I have that locus of control, I look at the world and go, whatever it is that I set my mind to, I can make a major impact in the world. Versus how I felt, you said early 20s is a dark period. That shit was really dark for me. And the reason it was dark was I had a big dream and I had no idea that I, A, that I even needed skills to go and get better, that I could acquire new skills because I thought that I was born with a certain set of talents and that was it. So once I realized, oh, okay, so Steve Jobs says, look around the world. It was built by people no smarter than you. Meaning, if you want to go build a bridge, go learn how to build a bridge. You want to build houses, build houses, be a great teacher, be a teacher, author, whatever. You can learn how to do it, go actually do it, and then the world will begin to change from your inputs, either in small ways or big ways, depending on where you want to play. So when I think about that whole causal sequence absolutely being true and Mm -hmm. being an echo of these uh, sub-processes that evolution has baked into our mind, whether we want them there or not, regardless of who our parents are, no matter what time period we were born into, 
there are these sort of evolutionary pressures pushing us in these directions. Mm -hmm. If you hand your locus of control off to somebody, not only do you now have an inability to manipulate the world around you, not in a negative way, but to change mm -hmm. the world around you, but you also never realize that desire to have autonomy and to get skillful. Yeah, and and the fears just seem bigger and bigger. I mean, that, that that's something that all of us have experienced, and something I am trying to like. Uh, I am already teaching. I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old, um, uh, and and I am trying to very much say, you know, face your fears, do this thing, you know, like like pl plant yourself, get get embodied, and because I, I've uh, the Kate Julian wrote this um, piece for the Atlantic that was sort of like a continuation of some of her themes and coddling, and it really hit hard the harm of having um, anxious kids. Uh, and that how much you have to address your your, your childhood's um, your, your child's uh, anxiety, and how much of that anxiety actually comes from the parents in the first place. And there was a horrifying line that like you, you really have to take seriously. Like if you if you have a kid who's afraid of dogs, um, that if you accommodate that too much, it spirals into the, in the into twelve things that they're afraid of, and so, something that can be really horribly life limiting. It's it's absolutely amazing piece. Um, that I was able to read, uh, able to, you know, that I recommend um, uh, by Kate Julian. But to, to your point about sort of like small empowerments and knowing how to do things, um, I think one thing that affects that I, I actually don't talk about very publicly, and I'm going to talk more about it, is I'm, I'm dyslexic. Uh, I, I'm, I, it means that, uh, honestly, as an adult, it doesn't hurt me all that much. Um, I listen to everything I can. I listen to audiobooks. I have the, the apps that read things to me. Spell checks, a godsend, dictation, you know, like all, all of these kind of like fixes make it more like a minor inconvenience at, at, um, as an adult. So, um, but I always think that gave me one huge advantage. I, I always knew I wasn't good at everything. And so I had to delegate on the stuff I wasn't good at, but I also was desperate to know how to do something. And I'm, you know, we were poor when I was a kid. So I felt so unsafe in a literal financial sense because we were, you know, we were really struggling when, when I was a kid until my dad started working again when I was 12. But I still had that mentality that I needed to learn how to do something. So I became a cook. Um, and once I knew how to cook, it was just like, and this was in high school. I was like, well, I can always go, go be a cook. <laughs> and and I meant it, you know, like it was what it, like, I, and my brother's the same way where it's just like, yeah, you know, like everything falls apart. I still have something that I can do. And that gave me a sense of sort of like safety in everything else. The fact, and it didn't come from outside. It came from like, you know, like one of my best friends, a carpenter. It's kind of like, mm. I know how to do all this stuff. Like uh, if, if, if uh, everything falls apart, I can, I can still do these things. And the, the, the small empowerment of these little things really, really matters. And so we focus so much right now in high schools and unfortunately ideology, whereas I think that if you actually were to teach people how to do practical things, and, and I mean this for students at every level, it would give them a sense of empowerment that's only possible by actually doing things, not just saying, oh, let's increase your self-esteem. Talk to me about trigger warnings. That's something that... Um you know, given all the things that we've talked about today, doesn't strike me as the best way to move through the world that yeah. while there are no question that there are some things that people have been through that are so traumatic um, that I would get why they would want to avoid them in the future. Sure. But much like you on freedom of speech, you need to fight for your enemies uh, right to say what they're going to say, no matter how horrible and despicable. Um, 
If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. I would think that in terms of healing and moving forward, that just trying to, like you said, with the, you know, if your kid is afraid of dogs and you really try to protect them and coddle them, that that actually gets worse. It doesn't get better. That you'd be better off like I make rules in my life and I will tell you one rule for myself, no matter what has happened to me in my life, I want exactly zero trigger warnings. I do not want people trying to prepare the road for me. Like mm-hmm. I would rather steal myself so that I can navigate. Trigger warnings are kind of a funny one because uh, they have such symbolic power power in, 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 in the country that, that they're definitely something that there are people who seem to be willing to fight and die on the hill of trigger warnings are good. And when I first heard about them, um, I, I was a little bit like puzzled by, by exactly what to make of them. And definitely, you know, like most movements in censorship, the the the, um, the intention is always good. Someone someone thinks they're saving the world or saving the soul of America, or in this case, trying to help people who are genuinely hurting. But it was interesting that they came up on campus with such a vengeance in 2013, 2014, because they'd more or less just been almost laughed out of existence on the internet because. In feminist circles, um, they're being made fun of because they, because originally they started from very understandable, you know, someone saying trigger warning, I'm about to talk about sexual assault. But every time people started using them, they got requests for more and more and more things that people were claiming to be afraid of or, 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 or triggered by. And it just wasn't sustainable. Now, this makes sense because if people understand what triggers people, it doesn't... <laughs> What triggers people doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, that essentially, if you are the victim of assault, it's not necessarily 
watching a movie about assault that's going to trigger you from a, from a psychological perspective, it could be a particular smell. It could be the color yellow. That's not, the brain doesn't work all the time in this perfectly linear way that watching a movie about war can make you feel like you're back in the war. It can actually be something, it can be a random song playing that, that can cause you triggering. So the fact that we, that, that triggers are not nearly as linear as people would like to, like to think they are. Um, but, you know, our initial um, opposition to them or our initial concern to them was that um, it was kind of like uh, telling people uh, in the in the legitimately safe space of a classroom um, that they can, that it's this is still such a big, scary thing that we, we should never even talk about it. Now, in our opinion, that has the power of making uh, things that you're fright frightened of not uh, seem bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful. And that was that was kind of our theory that essentially, you know, um, uh, and when Kate Mann attacked Height about it, um, he was saying that, uh, oh, that's like saying uh, in The New York Times uh, said something to the effect of, uh, oh, like Height would just like to uh, uh, deal with people with arachnophobia by throwing Spider-Man, uh, sorry, by throwing spiders on them. And I, I gave away the punchline, but Height's response was like, no, what I'm saying is you shouldn't, you should, you should be able to talk about Spider-Man around someone with arachnophobia, you know, like that essentially, like, it's a very different, uh, just being able to talk about something is actually very different. Now, here's what kills me, though. There have now been like four studies, maybe even five on trigger warnings. Not a single one shows any benefit at all um, to them. Several of them show that they increase ambient anxiety. The, the, the people who don't have PTSD um, uh, are suddenly uh, a little bit more afraid. One of the studies um, gave some good reason to believe that increases people's sense that words are inherently harmful, which is, of course, a very serious harm um, in, in a democracy. And one of the studies, I believe, showed that PT people with PTSD had actually made them worse, even for people with PTSD. So there's now a body of, of, um, of, of research that, that, that says this isn't this isn't actually helpful. This actually can be counterproductive, but the people who believe in it just won't give up on it. Um, and, and it's it, it's like, but what else can you do other than prove that it's not helpful? And if you really genuinely have compassion for the people that you're trying to help, you should be able to be moved by what does actually help them. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I come down on the issue is I get why um, people, you know, when you're feeling when you have compassion for somebody else and you hear that something might be distressful for them, it's like, oh, man, yeah, of course. Like, I, I don't want to upset you. But when you magnify that out over however many people and uh, you know, some of them, it's in good faith. Some of them honestly are just their sensitivity level is dialed way too high. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's like you, you can't even have conversations now and it just begins to stunt other things like freedom of speech or education, like just not being able to talk about certain things. Um, mm -hmm. And that's where I come down to, okay, well, what really works? And it, mm -hmm. if trigger warnings worked and it was making the world a better place and people yeah. were, you know, more, they were able to heal and then move on like, okay, cool. I would get it. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it feels a little bit like the tyranny of the minority to me. So it's, you know, a small handful of people on any given subject and mm -hmm. now it's like so much of the discourse is clogged with, you know, trigger warnings or shouldn't you avoid that or a nice person wouldn't talk about that. And it's like, Jesus, like we can't talk about anything because something is offensive to everybody. And that's that's even before people start using it sort of pathologically of just trying to yeah. shut down somebody they don't like and using it as a cudgel. Um, yeah. So where do you think we go with this? Like as a first amendment attorney, is this something like, is there a way to memorialize this? Like how do we keep this from spiraling? How do we get colleges back to the point where people went there 
with a radically open mind? Uh, that's a um, that's a great question, and I, I have to say I'm feeling pretty pessimistic about it um, at the moment, um, more so than I have in in, in some time. Uh, partially because I do think that the layer upon layer of different sort of um, ideological assumptions and rhetorical tactics means that uh, you know the people the people on the other side of free speech can always win. Um, and you really just have to get out of the system entirely. Something that I was never all that bullish on, that I'm now very bullish on, and, and this is breaking news as far as any podcast I've ever done. Um, there's something called the Calvin Report. Um, have you heard of it at the University no. of Chicago? Um, I think in 1967, uh, the guy who came up with the, um, the term heckler's veto is a famous uh, jurist, famous uh, lawyer. Um, and he wrote a report for the University of Chicago during the time when uh, universities across the country had activists who were demanding that they take political positions. And I, I've had a, I've, I've had a real uh, rude awakening on, on something that was very dear to my heart, is that I always kind of assumed that the free speech movement, you know, starting in Berkeley in the 1960s, that, that the um, opponents of that were essentially conservatives who wanted patriotism and mom and apple pie. Um, and I'm embarrassed to realize that actually the argument was and mostly, you know, at the time campuses were still decidedly liberal, it was, but it was more like two or three to one rather than, you know, 30 to one. But the professors wanted the university to be a special place that did its best to be outside of politics because it's our institution for creating ideas. It's our institution for, it's one of our epistemic institutions, you know, like, because reality is hard to know and we need these special uh, areas. And so the Cal, uh, in 1967, the University of Chicago came out with the Calvin Report basically saying, we have a very special function in society. We should be very hesitant to ever take political positions. Um, we should always be open to the possibility we might be wrong. All, all this stuff that originally, for, for most of my career, I was like, well, that's nice, but universities you know, can, can engage in free speech of their own and departments can engage in free speech of their own. But what's happened um, without this, having completely abandoned the, the monastic idea of higher education, we've ended up in a situation where uh, where the that idea has almost like uh, been flooded out. And I do think that some schools, and I think this for some corporations, have to get back to being able to say, no, we 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 are we we it's not our job to decide what the truth is in advance. The more we freight truth with assumptions that we have, the less likely we are to get it. I call it the, the, the um, uh, ideological uncertainty principle. You know, the, the essentially the more you uh, the more you assume it has to go in a particular direction, the more likely you're going to uh, you're, you're going to get get the truth wrong. So increasingly, you know, I, I have all sorts of ideas for reforms for higher education, but the the most radical one that I've come uh, I've come to after a you know long period is that some schools have to say, listen, we're neutral on political issues. Um, we believe that our department should be neutral on political issues. Professors and students are free to have whatever opinion they want, but as an institution, we are. Uh, uh, it's not our job to decide what truth is. It's not our our job to impose our politics on you. Um, and I think we need institutions like that. So this was, I think I've heard of this, but under a different name. So um, University of Chicago, is that the yep. one? University so of Chicago, yeah. they were known as like sort of the, the big stalwarts as sort of wokeism were sweeping the nation. They didn't. And I remember Brett Weinstein um, saying if if there were some universities that were woke and other universities that weren't, then you would mm -hmm. get, uh, I think he says game theory, basically the ones that provided the worst um, graduates, because, you know, they were the education itself was getting muddied by politics. 
they would end up losing out to the people that weren't woke and were still using, you know, just straight scientific method and, you know, putting out mm -hmm. the most um, people with the highest level of useful skills out into the world. And so over time, that would sort itself out. And his big lament, I think, was this, that Chicago, mm -hmm. University of Chicago, sort of the last holdout, um, had finally sort of given up as well and um, embraced a lot of these other policies. University of Chicago hasn't given up, but it is being eroded. We have a case an, involving Dorian Abbott at the moment where um, he's a professor who came out and said something that was very like um, common humanity, identity politics, uh, talking about we're going to you know, um, help elevate women, not by uh, by trying to f foster excellence and, and finding people who are, are uh, who, who who get by, uh, not not evaluated on their identity, but on on their success and all this kind of stuff that would have been um, absolutely coherent even 15 years ago is now treated as if it's a demonically hor horrible thing to say that they won't. He doesn't think they should be engaging in different kinds of um, affirmative action and, and um, you know identity politics. And there was a massive movement to just out the, uh, to just get this guy kicked out. You know, there was a change.org petition against him. He now has like a, a section where he only teaches like one person. He's, a, he's even turned into a pariah, even at University of, of, of Chicago. And that's bad uh, that, that essentially what, what the right response, you know, for an, for an institution that's supposed to figure out truth is you're entitled to your opinion. And this is not the end of the world that someone at the university disagrees. And the idea that we're even reached the point where it's a, it's a massive controversy when someone says something um, that wasn't controversial 15 years ago um, is being treated like a pariah. That's that's a problem for the for the production of ideas. And what it leads to, unfortunately, is a huge epistemic crisis that essentially when you look at people on the right who now believe in hoaxes and the election was fixed and all this kind all this kind of stuff. Um, I absolutely blame them for being superstitious and for and, and for um, uh, believing conspiracy theories. And I think that, I, I think that, that, that I, I don't forgive them that at all. I do, however, understand that they don't really trust what comes out of higher education all that much. They don't trust what comes out of mainstream media. And if you look, if you ask people in these institutions, it's like, well, that's just crazy. I'm like, really, really? You see, you see no reason why, why they why they think that, it, that it's rigged against their point of view. And when you don't have institutions that everybody trusts, um, that's really hard for democracy. So like one one place where my brain's been at is like we need some absolutely brand spanking new institutions that involve people who are trusted by people just to simply to tell us what the world actually looks like to some degree, because it's hard to know what the world looks like. It takes work to know what the world looks, looks like. And if you don't have any source that, 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 um, uh, that inspires, uh, you know, cross-partisan trust, we're in real big trouble and people not trusting a lot of higher education after what I've seen for 20 years, I don't entirely blame them. That's not to say that there aren't scientists within higher education that are absolutely amazing and understand the world better than anybody on, on, on certain topics. But as an institution, I don't blame them for being kind of skeptical uh, of it when particularly uh, when you make it so that so there was a situation where there was a professor who came out with a study um, about police violence and just in the last uh, year and it was essentially withdrawn because conservatives were using it people like heather mcdonald were making arguments based on it and that's crazy like, like the idea that kind of like so already there's very few people who will make controversial arguments in some of these departments already there's tremendous groupthink in these departments but if someone publishes something that is factually based that can be used by someone you don't like you withdraw it like that that's why should anybody trust what you come out with if, if it's that stacked against certain outcomes 
Do you have a sense of, of how we become so blind to this? Like as, as sort of a late entrant to thinking about the culture wars and stuff. Um, and as a business person, I'm always asking myself, okay, what is my goal and what works? What's mm-hmm. actually going to get me to my goal? And, um, it seems so self-evident when something isn't working. How yeah. is it that we're living through a world where people can't see the the sort of history death loop that we're in? They they I would assume they would take as is absurd on its face the following statement, which to me seems self-evident, that the only way to get everybody to think the right way is through violence. And mm-hmm. that 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 experiment has been run and it leads to the greatest atrocities of the last 200 years. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe more than that. So yeah. the, the, how, the, the, how are the, they blinded the to that? Of the, of the governments of um, Hitler and, 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 and Stalin, that, that was definitely on a scale of thoroughness that was really hard for any previous civilization to achieve. Just absolutely monstrous. Anyway, sorry. So how, how, how does this blindness come to be? It just seems so weird. Like it, there's really smart people. In fact, you and Brett Weinstein were talking about the fact that really smart people tend to get drawn to some of these ideologies. And yeah. so what is it about legitimately smart people? Like I'm not looking down on them. I'm, I'm worried. And so I'm mm-hmm. asking the question of, hey, these amazing, compassionate, wonderful people are missing what seems to me to be, hey, whenever you're like running a test, the whole idea of running the test is to have learned from it. And so it's like we've run these tests of trying to force everybody to think in the same way. They end in bloodshed of like magnitudes that are terrifying. Yeah. Why does that not seem obvious to them? That's a, there's so many different answers to it. I mean, I could go all the way back to Plato, who I think is a totalitarian monster who we dress up <laughs> as if he's uh, as if he's an OK person. Um, who wanted I've power never for, heard anybody say that before. Who wanted power for himself and people like him. People would talk about, oh, the, the Republic was just a metaphor for the soul. It's like, no, it was his very academic idea of what the way the, the way the world should be run. And they should be incidentally run by people like Plato, uh, like, Soc- like Plato himself. Um, and I, I, and I think that there's, there's a, there's a monstrousness, um, in, in sort of platonic philosophy that is essentially the idea of the forms is essentially that this, that, that, that the, the ideas in my head are more real than you. And they they actually say that, that the ultimate real things in, in, uh, the, the ultimate real things in are otherworldly, you know, um, uh, perfections of the beauty and of the circle. Yeah. I mean, the world of the forums was a real thing. Uh, huh. That, <laughs> and, that is, and bizarre. so the, the academic idea that essentially my academic theory, my, my beautiful permanent eternal construct, um, is all that matters is a formula for great evil. Um, what can, because what, we can what, substitute sort of the perfect circle with utopia. So it's like uh, my idea of the, and I'm trying to put it in, in today's, the mm-hmm. minds of people existing today. Are mm-hmm. you saying that some percentage of them are thinking the utopia itself is is more real or more important? We, more important. Thank you. I wanted to use that, but I wasn't sure that you would go for it. So the utopia yeah. is more important than yeah. you. Uh, and therefore, this it's that whole um, terrifying example of if you want to make an omelet, you got to crack some eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you think? Like they're in the grips of that sort of mental loop? 
I think that it's a very common uh, mental loop. I, I think that most, uh, I think that uh, there's a huge human drive towards conformity. One of the reasons why I find Plato so incredibly instructive is because this idea of the ideas are more important than anything else, and that they're permanent, by the way, and I, and I have access to them and you don't. Um, that's evil in, in, in my mind. The great, and one of the greatest innovations in human history was, I forget who the philosopher was who called it this, was the discovery of ignorance the belief that um, uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know extremely little, um, and all of us know extremely little, and that none of us are very bright in isolation. And I, it might be part of my personality, I actually take great joy in not knowing things. It feels wonderful, you know, the, uh, to, to, to be in awe and to not have certainty. Um, but I too, you know, sometimes feel the, pill, the pull of, of, of certainty. And once you once you have the idea that the idea, whether that's utopia, whether that's um, you, you know perfect equality, perfect uh, perfect justice, is the greatest of all ends, um, people are just abstractions, and some of them are in the way. Um, and I think that that unfortunately is a very normal part of the way human thinks. And we have this harder system that requires doubt and tolerance and um, always recognizing you might be wrong, and that uh, that. There's a speech by Learned Hand in 1944 that has a line that I love quoting because um, it confuses people um, when I say it now. It's uh, the true spirit of liberty is that which is not that uh, with, that is not too sure that it is right. And people are like, what what is that? What is what is that a cone? Like <laughs> what, what does that mean? But it is ultimately this idea that yes, you can work for progress, but you always have to take seriously the possibility you might be wrong. And if you if you think there's absolutely no chance that you are wrong um, and that you're absolutely on, on the right path towards salvation or God or utopia um, and nothing can stand in your way, that's when the greatest evils in human history happen. Um, and these these weirder, less comfortable, less certain ideas of human autonomy and freedom and doubt and empiricism and all this stuff, that's a very hard way to live, uh, you, you know, for people it's much easier to come to these sort of like simplistic, simplistic binaries or ideas of utopia or all that kind of stuff. So I think there's always a call bringing it back. Our institutions though, that are supposed to break us of this way of thinking are K through 12 and higher education, particularly higher education. And unfortunately, I think they're pushing us in a, in a, in a oversimplified, over-politicized idea of humanity, of society um, that uh, did try to come into existence several times and was a huge failure and, and somehow rearing its ugly head again. I, I'm not sure how we exercise the the sort of simplistic moral utopian certainty that keeps on asserting itself from you know the 19th century on. Um, I hope we can. I thought we had in, in 1989 and 1991, but literally as someone whose you know, family fought the communists since, uh, since before they even had a name, but and then literally fought them and not you know, my not my actual granddad, not my great grandfather, uh, you, you know, fought them. The idea that this is I, I'm, I'm reading more stuff about literally like people talking about communism being like a, like a, a swell thing again, even though, mm -hmm. you know, within, within our own lifetimes, it was so conclusively a, 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 a disaster. Um, and that's partially because there was never a reckoning on campus to deal with the, the ideology was just allowed to stay the same. Um, and it didn't have to comport with the real world. And once you get far enough away from the examples of these collapses being fresh in people's mind, let's go for utopia again. What's the yeah, harm? This, this is what really worries me. So there's a, a point when my wife and I are in an argument 
mm-hmm. where it starts civil and there's, you know, emotions aren't too heated and we're doing just mm-hmm. fine. And, you know, you can see the exit ramp and we know how to, you know, navigate our way. And then there'll be something that we'll hit on that's just, you know, maybe one person's raw that day for whatever reason. And you can feel the emotions escalating. And I have learned to articulate a very simple idea in the middle of that argument, which is we are now at the point where no matter what we say, this is going to end up in a full-blown argument. Because now it's not like logic and rationality don't matter anymore. This is all just emotion. And once we have the fight, then we can calm down again because it reaches sort of that that crescendo of absurdity where we go, okay, this is dumb. You know, we're not even arguing about the thing anymore. We're just pissed. Mm -hmm. But knowing that there is a moment where a tipping point where you can't go back now until you go all the way. It's kind of like Ipecac. Once you take it, you are going to vomit. And (laughs) I, I'm very hopeful. And the reason that I've started um, talking to people like you is I'm very hopeful that we are not at that moment yet, but Mm -hmm. I am hyper aware that as a society, we are racing towards the moment where the only thing that will calm us down again is, is great tragedy. And people will once again have to see what happens when the sort of Damocles falls, when we try to build a utopia, like what the sort of like, because eventually you get into the mix of it and you go, oh, now I get why this sucks. Right. But that it can be. And unfortunately, too many lessons in my own life. I've had to learn the hard way. People have tried to tell me and, you know, I just couldn't see it until I was in it. And then when you're in it, you can sort of unwind. But the thing that I I have Working in the inner cities has taught me one very powerful thing. Frame of reference is everything. So I can just tell you from experience that IQ is distributed evenly, right? So you go Mm -hmm. into the inner cities, you're going to find people there that are extraordinarily bright. And I will define Mm -hmm. IQ as the ability to process raw data quickly. Mm -hmm. But if if IQ is more or less the hardware... The f- what I call the frame of reference is the software. What do you believe mm-hmm. to be true about yourself? What do you believe yeah. to be true about the world? The easiest one is um, something that's near and dear to your heart, cognitive behavioral therapy. If mm-hmm. you don't realize that it is a cognitive distortion to do fortune telling or all or nothing thinking or catastrophizing, like if those just seem true to you and you yeah. don't recognize catastrophizing isn't true, it's your mm-hmm. mind projecting and you deciding to believe that that is actually true. If you don't recognize mm-hmm. it, then there is no difference between that and truth. And yeah. so you see, I've before this was a controversial statement, I've been saying this for a long time. Now I'm sure one day people are going to show up in my house with uh, pitchforks. But I would say that generational poverty has nothing to do with money and has everything mm-hmm. to do with mindset. Meaning, mm-hmm. if I were to take a child, let's say they were six months old and they were from impoverished parents and I raised mm-hmm. them in a wealthy environment, they'll grow up just like a wealthy kid, right? They'll be mm-hmm. educated, all the intellectual prowess didn't didn't matter. Same genetics, but raised one way or the other makes all the difference. And so I tried to break it down to what is this really? And mm-hmm. came up with this concept that I call frame of reference. And mm-hmm. I the way that I came to it was we were growing so fast as a company, hiring so quickly, I had to find shorthand ways to interview people. And I started asking this magic genie question. You'll just mm-hmm. have to trust me that it made sense that one of the things I was trying to understand required me to figure out what they wanted out of life. And so mm-hmm. I would ask the magic genie question. And I asked it, what, I don't know, 250 what, or 300 what times. The, what, what so the question was, hey, a magic genie is about to show up. They're going to grant you one wish and one wish only. You can't wish to cure cancer or bring somebody back from the dead. It has to be just for you. What do you want? Molecule man's powers. Say that again? Uh, from the comic books, there's a character called Molecule Man. I want his powers. 
I'll have to look that up. Something tells me I have thought about what if a magic genie were to ever come, what would you do? And the answer is the ability to, through simple language, manipulate molecules. So I'd be so curious to know if that actually is his power. Mo 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 molecule man. Um, and it, when, it, when people uh, hear me say this, they're kind of like, so you want the power of a god? I'm like, well, well he can control molecules and energy. Um, and so uh, when I, I, since I'm a nerd and I go through like the process, I have actually have thought at great length, like, what if you have the whole Justice League? How much of the world could you fix? And it's not that much, <laughs> except for Firestorm. Fire, Firestorm, who can like change the change matter, and it, it like um and when you start you you know when you want to like make Mars habitable or clean up take all the mercury out of the ocean or all this kind of stuff like you need to start thinking really big and so like my wish molecule man dude that is hilarious you were the only person <laughs> ever that has had the same answer that i have that is incredibly <laughs> wise of you sir now sadly that was not the answer that people were giving me i asked it like i said 250 or 300 times every single person gave the same answer and the answer was one million dollars now they were there for a job so sure i get it but I thought, why don't they ask for an impossibly large amount of money? Why not a trillion dollars or a money printing machine that would give currency that will always be accepted? And, yeah, but to pay off the national debt. Right. But instead, <laughs> they asked for a million dollars. And I realized to them, from their frame of reference, $1 million was an unimaginably large amount of money. Yeah. And that's when it hit me. Oh, my God. Like, their vision of what is possible is so small that that a million dollars is just like, oh, that's outside the realm of possibility. Whereas for me, it was like, you can't even buy a house in LA for a million dollars. This is crazy. Yeah. Like you, you've got to be dreaming bigger. What, what's, um, it, what's really funny about this is that I have both the, 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 the same personal experience working with inner city high school kids in DC in the nineties. And I got to work with like the really bright ones too. Um, and there was kind of almost nothing sadder because the, 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 the DC um, inner city schools at, in the nineties were horrifying like you know you know I had, I had students coming like right after there'd been a shoot like right after there'd been a, there'd been a shooting and they were you know kind of a little shook up because it, it had happened multiple times and these are like these are kids who have to really hide their smarts because they they'll get beat up for it you know um but also i grew up poor you know like i i i, I didn't think i was i wasn't sure i was going to go to college i started working in restaurants when i was 11. um i definitely had a little like a pretty strong working class kind of uh kind of bias and it was only uh, so, and I went to the first, for college, I went to the first school I visited. Basically, I visited school, I'd done well on the, uh, on the SATs, they gave me a scholarship, I was like, sure, okay. Um, and so I, I, I went there, and I, and I got, and, and I kind of thrived in college. I got to finally, like, be a nerd, um, and let my nerd out of the closet. And um, there was a time when I was doing something for the Fulbright program, and I met this dude who was a barrister slash lawyer human rights uh international practitioner who did stuff in south africa and in, and, in, and in europe and and it was and he was talking to me and it was like something inside of me was cracking like it actually felt physically painful to think for a second like could my life look anything like that because it just it would there was still this powerful separation in my mind between me and people who are doing really amazing things those were different kinds of people and so when I worked with Intercity, I, and this was this was like right before I started working with these kids, and yeah, like the, there is a sense of kind of like what is what, what's the big sky option, you know, like what 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 what, what um and and one one big limitation on this, by the way, is the fact that police uh, one of the is that classes kind of economic classes kind of police themselves to a degree, but there is a sense kind of like so you know let's let for some of these kids. 
so I, I go to college, you know, and I leave all my friends and they, they, uh, what's, what's out there for me that, that, uh, that isn't some kind of betrayal of the people that I come from was something that, that, that I, that, you know, I saw a lot about, um, that, that I, that I found very you know, disempowering, but yeah, believe me that, that mindset aspect, the idea that there is something out there that could be beyond, you know, your previous frame of thinking was, it was literally physically painful the first time it occurred to me. That's a great way to say it. And that's why this moment is so freaky to me because that frame of reference is so hard to break. Like you mm -hmm. said, it can feel like a betrayal or it feels like a physical schism. And mm -hmm. there is a frame of reference right now that is utopian. And so people mm -hmm. want this pure utopia. And when you argue against it, you sound like a monster. It's mm -hmm. like, because the, the utopia, if it could be real, really is amazing. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that once you put it back in the real world and make it about actual human beings, then it is so unrealistic as to require what we've already talked about multiple times, that draconian, like you would have to enforce it through violence, intimidation, um, just literally crushing people down. And that's where it's like, man, how, how do you get somebody to turn away from a utopia like that sounds about as hard of a frame of reference to pull somebody yeah. away from as i can imagine because you're yeah. asking them to accept a lesser view right you talked about the i think it was the czar that ended up getting murdered by a revolutionary because it was like that's not enough like it's better but it's not enough better and yeah. so fuck you we're going to kill you and so well, and it might be enough better that it placates the population and and that would be a disaster because then we won't get to we won't get to perfection and one of the things that I, i've had lots of arguments about this stuff in backyards in san francisco and of course i can always pull the actual family history card um but the uh, but one thing that i always have to point out is none of these systems deal well with human diversity if you care about diversity um and I explain this in terms of communism, like, like the idea that kind of like if, if you're going to be paid the same amount for working 40 hours a week really well um, and you can get away with 20, isn't there also a moral argument that you should be spending that 20 hours with your family? It's not, it, 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 so if there's a singular moral vision, um, it never works with human diversity. Um, it never works with human skills, human knowledge. And the idea that some of these utopias are done in the name of diversity, it's like, yeah, but utopias can't compute diversity like they they need conformity um or they don't work uh more enlightenment like systems that actually like kind of like the one we have where essentially we figured out a system constitutionally one of the reasons why i love the constitution so much is where even if people are acting horribly the system can still hold together whereas in communism when you require everybody to be angels that gives the sociopaths superpowers um whereas if you create checks and balances that say like listen even if you're being lousy we, we, we've got a way of dealing with this internally um then you have a stable system but all of this take, takes it can't be simple it takes being honest about human limitations and and the fact that for example you know and th it's something that i have to say sometimes when i'm dealing with like due process cases um i, I remember um you know, dealing with uh, with a case with um, Wendy Murphy, who was talking about how people accused of assault on campus should essentially have no due process. And she started on a radio show, started shouting at me. It's like, you're saying that women lie. Um, and I, it's like, I haven't said anything <laughs> like that. This is my second time on a radio show. And I said, well, actually, all due process requires is that people can be mistaken. <laughs> they don't even necessarily have to lie. But also at the same time, people lie. 
Um, and the idea that people can be dishonest, people can be abusive. Of course we can be. You also have to, you know, you also have to make sure that you're not being gamed and all of these sort of, all of these like, um, uh, perfectly, uh, normal parts of human nature, uh, they don't match well with the, with, with the utopian, uh, vision. And that's one of the reasons why they will all end up as authoritarian nightmares. Mm. So if we both agree that we have a frame of reference problem, you've got people stuck in a loop of wanting to build the utopia, which is actually quite noble. And, you know, you want to commend the level of compassion. Mm -hmm. um, how do we, one, do you think that we're already past the tipping point? Is it inevitable that we're just going to continue, you know, on these divergent, terrifyingly mm -hmm. divergent paths until, you know, something truly erupts into either authoritarianism or um, civil war type violence? Um, or do you see a way out? And if you see it, what is it? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to practice the epistemic humility I preach and say, honestly, I don't know. Um, I think that the fact that Trump continues to dispute the election right now, and you have something like, I think the latest ones is about three quarters of Republicans think that the election was a fraud. I'm afraid that that's going to blow up. And I think that the, the, the right and the left are weird mirror images of each other and i think that we could we can face disaster from 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 both uh and i'm afraid that some there's going to be a blow up there's going to be something really scary happening in the next couple of years and i'm not sure exactly what but it's you know when you have that many of the population who believe the election was stolen um that could get that could get really ugly really quickly i hope that like um what happened with timothy mcveigh in the mid 90s a horrifying oklahoma city bombing that did that got a lot of people going, whoa, whoa, no, 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 we don't, we, that, nobody wants that. That, that, that's, that's not the way we, we handle this stuff. I hope it doesn't come to something that horrible, but for the first time in my, I've never heard someone call for martial law um, in, in, in U.S. history, and Michael Flynn taking out that, that, that ad saying that he wants martial law, and when you already have sort of a utopian movement on, on the left, and you have sort of a, I, I, it, it, I don't know what to call it, you know, sort of like a, a nationalist populist movement on the right. That's a that's a scary phenomenon. And I, I honestly don't know how it ends. What I do know is we need to start thinking. And this is something that I think you could probably help with. We need to start thinking about institutions that people trust. Um, the American Psychiatric Association came out against toxic mas masculinity, you know, for example, um, which is absolutely taking a position more or less against men. Um, the, uh, the American Association of University Professors actually came out in some cases against professors. The New York Times, you know, fires James Bennett because he uh, ran a uh, editorial by a sitting senator. Um, a lot of these institutions have lost people's faith uh, for understandable reasons. And increasingly, I think that there needs to be at least a couple institutions that people all over the spectrum can look at and go, well, at least I trust these guys. And I don't think that exists at the moment. Um, and I think it desperately needs to. Even just one would help. Well said. Well said. I think that's a good place to tap out. Greg, mm -hmm. man, thank you for all the stuff that you put in the world, dude. You're just a voice that I am really, really into all the first amendment stuff. I highly encourage people to watch the documentary. My yeah, it's, Ira, it's Nico Perino. It was his passion project and man, he ran with it. And if you haven't already read the coddling of the American mind, who is that a good one? Real uh, proud that is absolutely extraordinary. Um, where can people engage with you? 
thefire.org. Uh, my organization is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. We defend free speech, due process, academic freedom on campus, but increasingly we're taking on the role of educating people about small L liberal concepts and, and, and freedom of speech. I also have a blog called The Eternally Radical Idea, which is also on fire. Eternally Radical Idea being free speech. It's always a radical idea to every generation, um, partially uh, embodied by the fact that in every generation, people oppose it. <laughs> yeah, sad but true. Mm -hmm. Guys, really, truly somebody that has blown my mind. I hope you guys will dig into the stuff that we've talked about. And uh, I hope you, from a contextual standpoint, understand why I'm so obsessed with this. This has to do with frame of reference and thinking in a way that allows you to achieve your exciting and hopefully honorable goals. Uh, and that is certainly my only desire. And speaking of exciting <laughs> and honorable, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.